Hello and welcome to Ion Oakland. I'm Chuck Moss. I'm coming to you through the magic of Zoom or StreamYard or whatever the app is we're using right today. It's virtual, but it's real. We have a great guest today, uh, one of our favorite people, Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. And to uh, make a long story short, um, they're the one group of guys you can understand to give you the straight uh, numbers, no matter without spin or without any advocacy. So glad to have you here. How about a quick hardball question? What's going on in Lansing? What's going on in Lansing is they have a whole bunch of money and they're trying to figure out what to do with that. And I'm happy to be here with you today, uh, talk a little bit about those numbers, but also let everyone tuning in know that we're doing a webinar to go into more depth on all these numbers. It'll be on Tuesday, January, Tuesday, February 28th. Uh, and not everyone's gonna watch this before then, but it'll be recorded and you can come to our website, crcmich.org, crcmich.org. And uh, under the events page, look for that webinar and we'll have the recorded link for everybody to look at. Okay, at the risk of uh, uh, abandoning all objectivity here, uh, I'm going to watch it, or if I don't watch it live, I'm going to see it. Your, your uh, webinars are invaluable to understand what's going on with some very, very complicated stuff. So the podcast, or excuse me, the webinar, crcmish.org. I recommend anybody uh, take a look at this. So you know, I, I hear all this money is out there. I, look, uh, this reminds me of the Simpsons, the classic monorail episode where the guy who's the, the monorail, who's like Professor Harold Hill, is, it's like the mule with the spinning wheel. Doesn't know how he got it. He's darned if he knows what to do with it. Uh, they know what to do with the spending of the money. I don't know if they know quite where to uh, go with it. There's got to be nine hands for every dollar. What's happening there? Right. So before the pandemic, we were averaging 24 billion dollars between the general fund and the school aid fund. And that money has really kicked up since the pandemic, right? And why is that? Well, federal money has come in through the PPP loan, the money to the individuals, uh, different stimulus to local governments and to other entities. Uh, so both getting that money, but then the effects of the stimulus, people spending that money, creating more. Um, we also know that there's been a transition in how people have made economic decisions where a lot of people purchased services before the pandemic. There was a transition and, and maybe we're going back, but there was a transition from services to goods. In Michigan, services are not taxed for the most part, goods are taxed. So that brought a lot more money into the budget. And then a lot of the surplus that we'll talk about is because the budget makers have been very conservative and we have to give them credit for that. This was a period of the great unknown. What happens with a pandemic? How does the economy react to that? If people are asked to stay at home or change their behaviors, how does that affect the economy? So they projected that the sky was going to fall, the sky was going to fall, but the sky didn't fall. So that creates a whole lot more money. So as they enter the current budget cycle, this is beginning the planning process for the budget that starts in October and runs through next September. 
uh, fiscal year 2024. It ends in 2024, not where it starts, it's where it ends. Uh, the process that they're beginning, they have a $9 billion surplus between the federal COVID money and the surplus money that's come in. And uh, as I watch all of that take place, all the wrangling about what to do with it, the, the politics are very much like the politics of a few years ago when we didn't have enough money. Back then, everyone said, we realize there has to be cuts, but don't gore my ox. And now they're saying, we realize there's money. I want my share of it, not what is the highest, best use of it. Let me make sure my program gets a little bit of that. And when you look at the long-term finances of the state, going back to 2020, it becomes pretty obvious. We're talking about $9 billion now in record high general fund, record high school aid fund. But when you look at inflation adjusted dollars, the general fund is still 17% what it was 23 years ago. We had a very tough first decade of this century. And of course the great recession affected it. And we've just sort of been treading water since then when you account for inflation. Revenues have gone up, spending has gone up. But when you're just treading water, treading water, now you get a little bit of money and that feels good. Let's provide tax relief. Let's spend that. Let's try to put it in to, to good use. But it's really just a bump above treading water. It's not even getting us back to where we were 23 years ago. So there's a lot of work to do if we want our governments to provide the services that they need to do to make us a competitive state and put us on the track for the right thing. And that's not to say government needs to do all things. I'm not trying to espouse a, a liberal philosophy here, but when you're really close to government, you see that they're just doing the bare minimum on a lot of things. And that's not creating an atmosphere that's conducive to business, that attracts people, um, makes people wanna stay in Michigan. You have collapsing dams and school system that's school overall system that's not doing everything it could be we're putting more money in it but we're not getting better results out of the k-12 system uh, we're not graduating kids from college without that that puts them behind the eight ball so there's a lot of things that we need to do better and having this money now depending on how what, what use it's put to it's just the first step in recovering to where we were before all of our hard times really started. Well, I know that uh, talk about the Great Recession, uh, and, and as for getting the budget done, I, I remember there were a couple of years where they got it done by June 1st, so it can be done. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, it sounds to me like you've got the surplus, and it isn't that big, as you say. But, it, you know, they're, they're talking about tax cuts, which are, you know, the tax cut for the government pensions. And that's what that's what the so-called pension tax was. I, I was there when we did it uh, because it was, uh, you know, those are largely government workers not paying pension tax and, and paying taxes. But anyway, oh, uh, uh, that permanently decreases the revenue, decreases the revenue and spending hikes for the permanently expanded programs permanently increase expenditure, which I see a recipe for a structurally unbalanced budget, 
which we definitely had going out of the Granholm years. And it wasn't, it was no picnic restructuring it, if you will. And now that there's money there, people are saying, eh, spend it or give it away or tax expenditure. Uh, is it, does anybody pay attention to the long-term uh, projections of this stuff? Well, certainly the House and Senate fiscal agencies are, and, and I think there's some good people um, in the, the state budget office and, and everywhere. But let's Chris, Mar into Chris Harkins, by the way, I think the world of Chris Harkins, who's state budget director. Yeah, he's he's very good. Um, very think very highly of him. So on those tax cuts, there's two elements to it: the earned income tax credit. Back in 2011, we went from 20% of the federal tax credit to 6%. This proposal would put it back to 30%. So people that are working, trying to do the right thing, lift their family out of poverty, this is meant to give them a hand up. The pension uh, tax cut. We felt strongly 15 years ago that that was part of the structural budget problems of the state. And there was some reason to tax those pensions. And now we want to move to undo that. So let's be very careful. Uh, the other things they're trying to do is do some, some money into the rainy day fund, put more money into this economic development fund to try to attract these mega sites and so on. Uh, some $180 refund to the different taxpayers. So is that good or bad? Is it creating a structural budget problem? We don't know because we're really into uncharted waters, how the pandemic has affected us are we going to go back to that normal that we knew before the pandemic, or is this the new normal at this higher level of revenues? Well, the, the, I, if yeah, I could the, project the future, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be off at Wall Street getting yeah. ripped. Well, I've got a, I've got a magic eight ball there somewhere, which we always used to use. Uh, but the pro the thing is, is that the new normal was after the Great Recession, when our auto, you know, the the great pillars of the auto industry had kind of crumbled. So this is the new new normal. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm beginning to think that maybe there isn't a normal. There's just whatever is, well, and we try to deal with it. The fundamentals of the state haven't changed because of the pandemic. The fundamentals are that we're not growing. Our population is not growing. The businesses, you know, we're attracting a new business here and there. Um, we haven't really changed who we are as a state. We've benefited from some windfall and, and maybe the economy has changed in some fundamental ways. So it's really hard to know. And, and the fact that the fundamentals have not changed in any drastic way, to me suggests that we're gonna go back to the life, the, the revenue and expenditure pattern that we were before the pandemic but that's just my educated guess. I, I have no more insight than anyone else really. Well, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, I kind of was, I want to say the post-Great Recession order, which was uh, kind of try to keep the budget low and keep a surplus, you know, keep it going. But it didn't allow for any big Hail Mary stuff, you know, um, like we're going to get a brand new uh, industry and we're going to pay them to come, and uh, which was a thinking for a long time. Uh, you're right. Michigan pretty much has been treading water for quite a long time. And I don't know that that's, that's going to serve us well. We have a lot of new competitors that we didn't have before. And I mean, like not before, before 2010, right? 
you know, so that's interesting. Whoever thought Florida would end up a powerhouse? Well, yeah, that's the the new reality we're going through. Where being on the coast is certainly an advantage. Being in the south, where you don't have to deal with ice storms and everything <laughs> that we're going through, uh, we say is it starts raining and and ice is coming down on a miserable Monday morning. Oh, so, yeah. So yeah, it's and and also just competing with our Great Lakes neighbors, uh, Indiana. Um, very tax competitive to try to maintain those low taxes. And, and so even those that want to be close to the auto industry, close to the manuf the furniture manufacturing, uh, take advantage of the Great Lakes, things like that. We have a lot of competitors in our own backyard. Well, we do. I always thought it was, you know, bad losing to, you know, losing, losing jobs and things to say, you know, India, Losing them to Indiana, though, oh my God, uh, you know, what are they doing that we're not? Uh, the real problem, of course, with, with budgets and stuff is that this 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 money goes somewhere and we should be thinking, is anybody thinking to the future or is it just, you know, the future, you know, back to the future of, say, 1970? Well, they're, they're thinking about the future. Right? We can give them credit for thinking about the future. Uh, the problem in my mind is that we're chasing jobs that aren't necessarily high paying jobs. And so if we want to advance in a state, we've got to competing with compete with Silicon Valley and places like that, where you're going to get high paying jobs that are going to help the economy. Those people are going to come in and stimulate the economy and there'll be spinoff jobs, things like that. Instead, we're chasing auto manufacturing, battery manufacturing plants, things like that. Yeah, we're, cha we're, chasing, we, we're chasing essentially the economy of uh, basically 1970. Of the 1970s, you're right. And, well, those, those were good years you know, for some people. Uh, all right, well, I'm going to take a break here, and then we'll come right back with Eric Lufer, who's the president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. And, uh, you know, we're, when we come back, we were talking about, you know, Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley isn't doing so good right now either. Man, maybe Michigan for quality of life. we got a lot to offer, but we're going to offer you as we're going to take a break right now and come back. Don't go away. We'll be right back here on Ion Oakland. Welcome back to Eye on Oakland. I'm Chuck Moss. We're talking with Eric Lufer, who's the president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. And we're talking about the um, uh, budget. We're talking about Michigan priorities. I have a question. We have just changed the House and the Senate and their partisan makeup. The House changes has changed before. It's a big deal. The Senate, it's been a long time. Is there, what are you seeing as a difference in, is, is anything coming out differently? One would think it would out of Lansing. Well, certainly the budget, well, the policy priorities are different. This is the first time that the Democratic Party has had unilateral control across the governor's office, the House, and the Senate. So 
some of the things that have been priorities to them are rising to the forefront and they have a chance to move those through. The deal though, is that they have narrow majorities. They don't have the ability to unilaterally push things through and, and have the governor sign them. So they are forced to work with Republicans and compromise on things and try to find that middle ground. And the most recent, uh, we were just talking about the EITC and the pension tax. There's a whole package of things that they want to get done before the middle of April for a number of reasons we don't need to go into. And they were able to get the votes and, and pass them and say, this is what we want it to look like, but they don't have a big enough majority to give it immediate effect. And so it can't happen in time to matter for that mid-April deadline. They have to go back and find a way to work with Republicans and pull the uh, pull the votes together to get that supermajority they need if they're going to give this immediate effect. So that's just one example of the, the need to work together with the very narrow majority that they have in the House and Senate. So you know they're going to deal with gun control. They're going to eventually get the right to work. They're going to do a number of other things. They're, they're dealing with the, um, the equal rights and the, um, the whatever, I, I forget the name of the law. Um, so, so there's a number of things and they won. Winning has consequences and they should be able to push their priorities through. Um, but they're just not going to be able to cram things through. They're going to have to be judicious on what they take up, when they take it up, and how they craft legislation that is amenable to at least some number of Republicans to get the votes that they need to get it done. Because I was at, well, that's that's how it's supposed to be, is there needs to be protections from the minority, for the minority. I mean, it can't be 50% plus one and you can become a tyrant. Uh, I know I was there when we had majority and we couldn't just cram stuff through. You had to have a, uh, you know, you had to have some of that. That's a protection. But um, one thing I hear about process from people that, that are there right now is that uh, committees aren't meeting. Uh, they're trying to run things through conference committees. Uh, we can explain that if we want to. That, um, you know, now when I was there the last time around, the Dems had majority in the House. They did do stuff Republicans liked. Why would they? They weren't elected to do that. But they held committee hearings. They had meetings. It was all very up and up. Uh, today, the committees aren't even meeting at all. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to judge too early here. Here we are, middle, end of February. They've been in session for about a month. We got organized and named committee chairs. And the governor just introduced her budget a few weeks ago. So they're starting to have legitimate hearings to start hearing from people and the different subcommittees. Um, and, and of course the weather has been a factor. So uh, there may or may not be issues with that. I think it's too early to judge on some of those things, whether they're having hearings or not. Well, good. we do have to say though, that the, they have not been in, had this sort of unilateral. So there is a learning curve to learning to govern. To learning to be the ones that have to schedule the meetings and 
and worry about Robert's rules of order and, and a whole lot of other things. So um, they're not going to get it right right out of the gate. And I don't think the tables were turned. I don't think the Republican Party would get it right right out of the gate either. Uh, we did on appropriations, but uh, we had a lot of time to watch. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Uh, it, you think that though they'd been in minority for so long, they'd plan what they wanted to do and come right out, bang, bang, bang. But but I, you know, I, term limits has been in effect too. So even though there might have been people six years ago saying, if we get control, this is what we're going to do, those people are now home working in their office and and doing <laughs> what they were doing doing before legislatures hosting talk shows such as this. Um, so it's a new group and, and they're, they're starting from scratch. Touche. Exactly. Um, uh, but uh, now it's funny, you mentioned term limits. That's, that's, that's actually uh, very good. I understand that there are 50, like what, 55 new house members uh, that like the majority of the majority of the house are new guys. Is that, I mean, I agree how the, how the, I got to watch my language here. How do they know anything? They don't. And they're leaning on the veterans that have been around for two or four years. Two years? And that's not a whole lot to lean on, right? No. Two or four years have given them enough experience to know where to find the restrooms down the hall and, and sort of how committee hearing should work, but not right. a lot of experience to really be leaders and take the flock through, take this freshman flock through their first experiences. Yeah, well, actually finding the restrooms isn't that hard, but uh, yeah, take the flock. Yeah, that would assume that uh, all the people on your uh, in your caucus are a bunch of sheep and they're not. It's like, it's not like hurting cats. It's like hurting, you know, like hurting, hurting wildebeests or something. You know, they're not going to follow you. But uh, that's a lot. I mean, uh, I just say that my prediction is this particular class there will be a bunch of monsters going forward because once they learn, you know, get their feet and they're going to be there for, what, 10 years. Good luck for anybody else coming in. But, um, you know, everybody said that term limits, and I always heard this, uh, meant that the lobbyists would be the biggest winners. And I didn't find that. I found that the real, because the lobbyists have to get to know all new people every few years. So their, um, you know, their, uh, you know, their influence is kind of iffy. It was the bureaucrats that won big. And because they're there permanently and they would outweigh you. And I, I at least a couple of the people from the agencies when I was a state rep just told me, you know, you know, I'd have to listen to you. You're going to be gone. I'll still be here, which is absolutely true. Uh, you know, with this new term limit law, it's I don't have a clue which direction they're going to go with it. Well, I think we're going to get back somewhere similar to the way it was before we had term limits. Uh, when you go back then and look, there was turnover. We have, of course, the famous Dominic Jacobetti from the Upper Peninsula that was around for some 30 years and built a little fiefdom in the Appropriations Committee and really became the reason why Michigan thought term limits would be a good idea. And then a few others that stuck around for a long time. But when you look at the rank and file of that House and Senate, there was turnover and and people came and went, and I think this is what's going to happen again. Even during term limits, there were legislators that came in and served one term, served two terms, and said, you know what, this is not for me. Or the people said, no, what, you're not for us. 
so so there's going to be term turnover. Really, what we lacked during our period of term limits, as as we've known it, is strong leadership in the House and Senate because you cannot know enough to be an effective leader, and you cannot build enough relationships with enough people to be an effective leader with just four years of experience. So we're going to have turnover. It's not going to be as quick as it has been for the last 25 years when you've had six years in the House and eight years in the Senate. Um, but, but it'll be better turnover than, say, Indiana without term limits or Kentucky or a state like that when you make those comparisons. But having people that can stick around longer, become effective leaders, build relationship with the committee chairs, with the people in their own party, but also people across the aisle, better leadership will lead to better legislating, will be to better, let's hope, relationships with the executive office. Uh, that's the real game with changes in terms. Yeah, the 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 key, the key was staff. I mean, I'll tell said this a uh, footnote. You know, when I, I became appropriations chair, we walked in, and the first thing I did was jump up on a desk and take down Dominic Jacobetti's picture. Took it right off the wall, and then for good measure, I took down Mo Hoods uh, because you know, look, there's all we can only have one chairman right now. Jake's went down. Uh, I think I put up a like picture one of my dogs or something, but yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, we really needed to turn over a new leaf then. And, uh, but that leaf, you know, the leaves kept changing. Uh, well, the people, but the people spoke and the people voted and this is the way it is. I want to go back real quick. Now, one thing that the citizens research council website, CRC, uh, Mish, crcmich.org, which is by the way, an invaluable resource for this stuff. Uh, you were talking about, federal dollars being spent on education and that it needed to get spent. Can we talk about that? What's the problem with that? Problems? Yeah. So part of the COVID relief that started with the CARES Act back in March of 2020, and there was different packages culminating with the American Rescue Plan in March of 2021. Uh, each of them subsequently gave more money to schools and it was all targeted in a way so that schools with the students with the lowest incomes, the most at-risk students were getting the most amount of money. So schools with like Detroit and Flint and Benton Harbor and Saginaw and there's a whole bunch of others got a whole potload of money to do some really good things with and lift their student base and fix the schools and provide tutoring and provide the education services that will hopefully help lift their students and provide a better future for them. So they have this money, they still have a lot of it to spend that has to be spent within a few years. Otherwise it just goes away. Uh, the, 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 there was, there was little connection between COVID remediation and, and how the districts have to use this money. But there is a time limit to say it's all about COVID. So the further we get from COVID, the, the, the shorter the deadline why you need to get, get that money spent. 
Yeah. At the same time, the state has a boatload of money and it wants to do the same thing, given, again, that we have this democratic um, control of the House and Senate and the, the governor's office. So they want to help the districts that have often been friendly to them and where they're coming from. But now you're going to be piling even more money into these districts' coffers, and and there's only so fast you can spend the money, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, so our paper, as you can find on our website, said, let's be judicious about this. Let's look for ways to leverage that funding and do really good things, but not let's not expect the districts to take that federal money and try to provide reading and math tutors and, and whatnot, and then give them state money for that same thing. There's not enough tutors out there. There's not enough ways to spend that money unless we're really thinking through how to do it the right way and making sure that we're not being wasteful with that. That's well, good. I mean, we're going to, it's good. It's like a sugar high, you know, you, you feel great and then it's all gone. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Well, we're going to have to call it quits here because we're out of time. Uh, Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. They're the guys with the numbers you can trust. CRCMICH.org. I recommend that website. Bookmark it. Thank you for uh, coming with us, uh, Eric. Thank you to all of you, Chuck Moss, and uh, we'll see you around here on Ion Oakland. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.